Hello and welcome to a Thursday episode of the State of the Nova Nation. I'm Eugene Arpe, he's Chris Danziel, and Georgetown looked in. They completely checked out. I was sitting there wondering, is this what it's like to Ethan Raggy a team? Is this what it feels like to be on the good side of that Butler-like beatdown? Because it was amazing. Georgetown looked absolutely defeated. At one point in the first half, Patrick Ewing asked his team, do you guys want to win this game? And only one person nodded. Everyone else looked like they checked out. The fans, I don't know how some of them stayed the whole way. Props to them. But it was a complete beatdown of the Georgetown Hoyas by the men's basketball team. Six different Wildcats in double figures. And as we just completely destroyed them, 88-56, to 56, the bench mob felt nice. And they gave them a little 12-0 run at the end of the game. But that didn't even make a difference. That made it go from a complete annihilation to still a complete beatdown. Yeah, this was a beatdown of, of epic proportions, at least on the regular season side. I mean, Eugene, how could you forget the Oklahoma game from the Final Four of two years ago where we shot the lights out there? But... This was just great to see. This is the second time in the past week that I literally have no, like no complaints about the game that Villanova played. They shot the lights out. The ball movement was great. The defense was phenomenal. Only giving up 56 points with most of that coming in garbage time because the, the bench mob was in. It was absolutely perfect. They shot 17-33 from three, which is probably the most amazing stat from this game, which is good for just for about 52%. But the shots weren't even bad shots. They weren't forcing it. They were getting the open looks. They were making the extra pass. Jalen had another great game. Bridges had a great game. Booth had a great game. Mari had a great game. Dante had a great game. I mean, everyone had a great game. Six players were in double digits for this game. Absolutely phenomenal performance. To top it all off, you had 22 assists on 33 made baskets. So they were definitely sharing the ball, distributing the ball. So the offense isn't missing a beat, and the defense was back to normal. And I have to say, it was good to see Colin Gillespie back so we could rotate the players in in and out a little bit more. It was a great all-around game. You mentioned the Oklahoma game. I'll be honest with that. It's a little different when you get to sit back and enjoy a game, not put on the media hat on, not put on the reporter credentials, because I had a lot of adult beverages, and I was at Kelly's screaming with everyone else. So I didn't forget the Oklahoma game. I was just too busy enjoying it to even pay Fair. attention to stats. <laughs> Fair enough. Makes sense. But yeah, that, that was actually a good example of destroying someone in that style, especially do it on a big stage. But this is also fun, too, because it was the Georgetown Hoyas, our rival. They could be good. They could be bad. They could be top five. They could be bottom five. And it's always good to beat your rival. It's always good to beat Georgetown. No complaints. Absolutely no complaints. It just seemed like Villanova, whatever they wanted to do, they were able to do it. All the shots were very good looks. And even the ones that Georgetown was able to close on, we just knocked it down in their face. Absolutely no mercy. Mm -hmm. This game was over in the very beginning. What was it? A 22-point run? 20-point run? It was an 18-0 run like to make it 31-8 at one point. And then obviously that that was the end of that. Yeah, from there, some Georgetown fans were already looking for the exits. It was a complete annihilation. Everyone looked really good. The fact that you got to see the bench mob was very good. And for Georgetown, literally, I don't even think I can really highlight anyone. I didn't even... There was Jesse Govan, and there was Marcus Derrickson. And the easy answer was to, quote-unquote, try to feed it inside against a smaller Villanova team. They, I never really felt like they were in the game. Like, yeah, Govan had 12, and he was the only one to surpass double digits. But when they go a combined 7 for 20, 
I just didn't feel that blown away from them, and they were easily masked by what Villanova wanted to do. They were literally at the mercy of the Cats, and it was a great performance by Spellman. Good job by Spellman and Pascal on those two guys on both ends of the court because they both got to enjoy a double-digit game on one end, and on the defensive side of the court, they really did a pretty good number on them also. But yeah, every Bridges looked like he was back in action. 17 points, 4 for 5 from deep. Brunson doing what he usually does. 18 points, 7 dimes, 7 for 11, 4 threes. Eric Pascal, 10 points, 3 for 4 on the floor. Phil Booth knocked down 3 trays, finished with 12. And Dante DiVincenzo built off of his big St. John's game with a 13.7 rebound and 5 assist performance. So literally, I, I was not upset with anyone. I thought everyone did a great job. And it was also, as you mentioned, really good to see Colin Gillespie back. He didn't light up the stat sheet, but he did log 15 minutes of playing time. Had a little tape on his right hand. It looked like he came a lot quicker than some of us expected. Wasn't next week. It was pretty much a couple of days after. Yeah, that that was a pretty big bombshell. Like it was, it was right before game time too. They're like, yeah, yeah, no, he's ready to play. And we we talked about him last episode that oh, he will probably be back next week, whatever it may be. But yeah, he, he he was ready to go, and it, it was nice to see. And what a perfect game to work him in. No pressure type environment. Go do your thing. Get the game speed back and do whatever you want. He he got some extended time at the end, obviously with the bench mob. He took on the Phil Booth role of a couple of years ago, where where he basically commands the floor and the bench mob just does their thing. And he fit fine with the regular offense. I mean, he didn't take any bad shots. He didn't turn the ball over when with the regular offense. With the bench mob out there, he did a couple times, but that's neither here nor there. He looked fine, no complaints whatsoever. He didn't make any bonehead mistakes. He didn't take any bad shots. I, I like this game. I keep saying it, but literally, no, there was not one gripe I have with this team right now after the, uh, that performance. Yeah, against St. John's, they were a little suffocated, a little constricted. But this time around, they were just so free-flowing, just picking apart Georgetown however they wanted on offense, and then defensively really shutting down Govan, Derrickson, and their backcourt of a revolving door and some whatever cast of characters. Another thing, if you're looking for Jermaine Samuels, and Tim Delaney last night, it was reported just before the game that both guys did not travel with the team, feeling a little under the weather, just like Chris. But Chris is here, you know, fighting through his sickness, putting together the pod. I'm okay. <laughs> but yeah, Jermaine Samuels and Tim Delaney were both sick. And as we know, Samuels is recovering from that hand injury, wrist injury anyway. So he wasn't going to be available. But if you're looking for a Tim Delaney, he was a little sick. Hopefully he's feeling better. Hopefully Jalen Brunson picked up some chicken noodle soup for him. Classes just started. And as we know, when classes when the semester starts and classes begin, everyone gets sick in like that first two week window. Yeah, that's mainly just because everyone's back in indoors and everyone there's just so much humanity going around, a lot more opportunity to to spread the whatever's going around. With this game, honestly, if there was anything to take away, it was that Villanova got to beat down the rivals, which is fantastic. The Wildcats just completely destroyed them. I'm sure if you're John Thompson or any sort of Georgetown Hoya supporter, you were disgusted, absolutely disgusted by what happened last night. But obviously, if you're on the Villanova side, you just rejoiced. Everyone who's a Wildcat can enjoy a big Hoya beatdown. If you're Georgetown, yeah, you dropped out of the PK-80. But I'm sure next year you're going to want to drop out of your two conference games with the Wildcats if this is going to be the result every time. Because Villanova just absolutely owned them in the first... The game was over in the first 10 minutes. I'd never seen anything like that before. At least not in conference play. Like, even when we beat Nepal, Nepal was more competitive. Yeah. It just felt like a non-con game. When you go in against a cupcake, 
and then you just toss them around a little bit. And the game was pretty much decided. Georgetown looked mentally out of it mm-hmm. in the first half, and then it just didn't get better in the second half at all. But yeah, kudos to the Wildcats for just taking care of business, making a big statement. Six guys in double digits, really nothing to complain about here. And it's always good to get that road win because, as anyone will tell you, road games are bare in conference play. Ah, the the take that keeps on giving. But yeah, I want to just bring up a point. You said that if you're a Georgetown fan, obviously you're just you're disgusted by this game, and obviously so. But did you really expect anything different? Like, did you? I mean, obviously you're not expecting a thirty point beatdown, but I mean, were you were you expecting a any like any different result? I mean, come on, like a place formerly known as the Verizon Center was a morgue. Your your team just looked disinterested. Like, did you did you not expect this result? Oh, I think they expected the result of losing. I think the ceiling was a 15-point loss, but but right. <laughs> but to lose by 32 when really it should have been by, like, 40 if we didn't empty our bench and they right. didn't go on a 12 run. Right. When you look at it like that and your expectation is a 15-point loss, that is just a total disappointment. Yeah, no, that, that's a fair fair point. <laughs> Yeah, the, the spread actually on the game was only like 12, 12 and a half. That was blown out of the water. So, yeah, I guess if you want to put the ceiling there, I guess I guess it does look worse. I wish you guys nothing but best. The ceiling is the roof. Let's make it happen. Let's keep moving forward. Yeah, one point in the game we led by 44. Absolute domination right there. A big, big East win. Granted, it's not one for like the stand. It's not one against like a contender. But it's one of those, when you have an off day, you look at this, it's like, oh yeah, felt really good to just destroy them. As pointed out by VU Mander, we shot over 60% in back-to-back games versus Patrick Ewing last night and back on April 1st, 1985. Nice little fun stat nugget. Yeah, they, they mentioned that during the game that Villanova also had a great shooting night that night, similar to the one they were having last night. And I was like... Well, this game was a little less competitive than the other one and of much less importance. But, hey, I, I guess when the percentages are relatively close, why not make the comparison? And also, they didn't wear the 85 jerseys last night, just the troll. I was kind of shocked at that. They already knew that that would probably, like, trigger Patrick Ewing to do something. <laughs> he doesn't need any more reminders. I bet you, I bet you he's, like, stricken the date. April 1st, 1985 from his memory. He, that day did not exist in for as far as he knows. Or just April 1st in general. I think he just goes straight to April 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> every every year he gets pranked. He doesn't even need someone to prank him <laughs> on April Fool's Day. He just gets it. He just gets trolled by being reminded of the greatest upset in college basketball. <laughs> you know, by every sports media outlet. It's that's um yeah, that's that's a bad enough day for you. Yeah, very brute awakening for Patrick Ewing in his reintroduction to the rivalry. I guess it's picking up right from where he left off. But now, with Georgetown game right behind us, we will look forward to another classic throwback Big East opponent in UConn. They're not in the Big East, but this game might might bring back some old nostalgic memories of some of those great showdowns in the past. I mean, there was that memorable one at the... Well, it's not, it wasn't the Wells Fargo Center yet, but it was the Wakovia Center. Wakovia Center, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great game. Would you say that was probably the last very big Nova UConn game? I'd like to say so. I'm trying to think if there was one in 09. Well, they had their matchups in 09 when UConn was good again. And yeah, yeah actually, yeah. 
Where, where both teams were of equal competence, yes, I, w- I would say so. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, there were definitely good games right. after that, but that was probably the pinnacle. They were both top five, and then just the NBA talent on both sides oh, in yeah, that 2006 that, game. That was ridiculous. You had Rudy Gay, Marcus Williams, Josh Boone on the UConn side. You had you had Alan Ray, or he wasn't really NBA talent, but you had Randy Foy, Kyle Lowry. Yeah, a lot of NBA players on that court. Yeah, and for a while, that was the most attended game at that building. Do you still refer to it as Wachovia Center when you talk about that game? It was the highest attended game until, I think, Villanova-Georgetown in 2014 or 15. Or no, I guess the Virginia games are past that, right? Yeah, I thought that was like the, the highest attended game in like Pennsylvania or something. Or like I, I don't know, something weird like that. Pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. Yes, Unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> It's not as high profile. At least on one half it is. Villanova's coming as the top-ranked team. They're going to XL Center in Hartford. It's the beginning of this three-year series where we play it at Hartford this year. Then the, the game goes to the Mass Square Garden next season. And then it'll be back at the Wells Fargo Center in the 2019-2020 season. So it's exciting. It's exciting to rekindle these old rivalries. It's fun to play teams like this. We had the Syracuse one in the past. Fortunately, Syracuse was still good when we had that series with them. So the Huskies, they're going to be hyped to have us coming to the XL Center. This isn't the same UConn team that we previously saw back in 2014 in the NCAA tournament. We weren't in the Big East at the same time, but they still gave us a pretty good fight. And they eventually upset Nova and went on to win the national championship. Not the same cast and crew. Both sides have graduated the last batch of players from that game. With new faces, a new team, what can we expect? What do we see from this year's UConn team now that no one is left from that championship squad in 2014? This certainly isn't the Shabazz Napier Huskies or even the Kemba Walker Huskies. This is a completely different squad and not an all-too-great one in that regard. They've played some big-name teams. They've actually played three ranked teams. They played Michigan State, lost. They played Arizona, lost, and Wichita State, lost. You sprinkle in five other losses, 10 wins, good for a 10-8 and eight record with a 3-3 three and three record within their conference. They're coming off a loss to Memphis, at Memphis where they got shellacked 73-49 to 49 on Tuesday night. Not exactly a good look there. So maybe they'll be a little more fired up for this Nova game. Not exactly sure how they'll respond. But team-wise, again, this is UConn. They always have to have a good guard, it seemed like. They have Jalen Adams as their star player, averaging 18.5 points per game. Not exactly the best three-point shooter, shooting around 32%, but he is 42% from the floor. Watch out for him. Building off his guard tandem, you have Terry Larrier. He's averaging 15.3 points per game. And you also have Christian Vital. He's averaging just under shade under 14 points per game. Not exactly the most efficient scorer, but he's up there in the points per game. So... Those are the three players that you should really look out for. I like it. We're going to get some Jalen on Jalen action. Yeah. 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 And point guard versus... And point guards from Galore. Wow. This is classic UConn. Always having that leading point guard that's their leading man, does everything for them. Jalen Adams is pretty talented. He's a very good point guard. He's been their guy for a couple of years. He really masks... Of UConn team that at 10 and 8, they're not terrible, but compared to the tradition and history of UConn, that's a par. Yeah, and, it's not exactly what they're used to up there in Hartford. No, and Kevin Ollie, 
after that national championship run, his first year there, he was deemed as like a god, a coaching god, and it's starting to look like that was a little, maybe a little case of one hit wonder. Yeah, he kind of got, I guess, a little lucky with that situation. I mean, that, even like from a talent standpoint, that, that UConn team from 2014, like it was good, but I feel like they just got hot, just like the Kemba Walker team. I mean, even though I think that Kemba Walker team was a little bit better, but they, they just caught fire and that was it. They were good, but they weren't like, oh, they're definitely going to, they're going to win the whole thing. Like no one called that. Yeah, there were a seven seed. I'm sure outside of UConn fans, no one had them winning or going all the way. This season, they're going to hope for an NCAA spot, but right now it's not looking too likely. They did have a four-game losing streak that they were able to bounce back from, but that recent decimation by Memphis is not looking too good. This team is very interesting. If you stuck around after the Jimmy V Classic, you got to see a little UConn-Syracuse, and that game was an absolute bore fist. I mean, yeah, okay, there were, you know, it was cool in the sense of that, like, oh, you know, old Big East teams, two powerhouses, two, just a nice little throwback event, UConn, Syracuse at the Garden, like, oh, it's going to be like that six-overtime game at the Big East tournament semifinals, but no. Mm. No, you saw a Syracuse team that won the game and a UConn team that just struggles offensively. Outside of Jalen Adams, this team cannot really score very well. Corner Kempop, they are 325th in effective field goal percentage. They shoot just about 30% from deep, which is 326th. And for reference, there are 351 teams in, in Division One college basketball. So that puts them in the bottom 25. That's not a good place to be. And inside the arc, they're ranked 292 out of 351 teams. This team struggles to score. This is a team that's more offensively challenged than St. John's. I guess if you want to compare them to a team, it's like St. John's in that they have a stud point guard, yeah. and then there's everyone else <laughs> that surrounds this guy, and they're mm-hmm. decent on defense. Defensively, they're ranked 103rd in terms of defensive efficiency. Mm-hmm. So while they're really poor on offense, they're close to a top 100 team on defense. But make no doubt, Jalen Adams is very good. I oh, think he's a great point guard. He's on a number of watch lists for awards. A stud. He's an absolute stud. But mm. the rest of the team doesn't really impress me. They are very thankful that they have Terry Larrier coming back. Because if he was still injured, this team would be in the dumps as they were last season. It doesn't help that Altery Gilbert got hurt again this season, and he's out for a very extended period of time because, and it doesn't help that Altery Gilbert is injured again. He missed pretty much a majority of last season, had a season-ending injury, just like Terry Lariat. They were both hurt. Lariat comes back, Gilbert comes back, but unfortunately for Gilbert, he got hurt in the sixth game of the season, and he's out again for an extended period of time. He was looking pretty promising, and it was looking like, oh, you know, this can be his comeback year. Unfortunately, it isn't. So right now you're left with Adams, Larrier, and Vital. And honestly, outside of this trio, there is no good value. You don't really get valuable depth after that. They can run in a lot of different guys at you. But outside of Adams, Larrier, and Vital, no one is averaging more than 6.5 points per game. That's atrocious. That's <laughs> There's no good quality minutes off the bench. It's pretty much lockdown on lock in and lockdown on these three guys. And you'll be in great shape. Jalen Adams, he's phenomenal. All attention should be on him. UConn is a guard-heavy team, and it's pretty much reflected in how they pretty much revolve around the same guys, Adams, Vital, and Terry Larrier. He's kind of like a, a wing guy. 
185. But ultimately, I think Ken Palm has Villanova as a 94% favorite to win, predicting a 15-point victory for the Cats. I am totally going with that. I would not be surprised if it's more than 15 points. In fact, it would probably be around 20. But XL Center is usually a tough place to play, so you never know. But I, I would say Cats, definitely. I'm going with the Cats in this one. Yeah, as am I. I mean, as, as you brought up, though, XL is a relatively tough place to play. It's a Saturday game. It's at noon. You got to think the crowd would be into it and would be up for it. I don't know how this fan base is reacting to this team. As you've said, it's really not that great of a team. And they're not, this is not the team they're used to up there. So, yeah. And I remember I said in the Big East the preview sh- or the Villanova preview show that if, like, UConn was on a nice streak and they were building momentum toward a possible tournament bid, then, yeah, this this might actually pose some problems for Villanova because of the crowd and just, just the general momentum that Connecticut would have and the fact that they're good at home. But, yeah, I, I just – that obviously hasn't happened, so I just don't, I don't see Villanova losing this game. Yeah, absolutely no shot. I just can't see the Wildcats losing. And I think if you're a UConn supporter, fan, alum, student – you saw what Villanova just did to Georgetown, and you are so scared. You are just hoping that, man, uh, as long as you can minimize the damage, we'll be okay. I mean, we're, we're definitely underdogs in this game, but I just can't see the Cats losing here. I think Villanova wins very comfortably. Honestly, I'll, I'll be looking forward to the Jalen on Jalen action. And in this one, I have Brunson individually, and I have the Cats as a whole beating the other Jalen and the Huskies. I'll be keeping a close watch. This Saturday, I might even go up to Hartford. I don't even know yet. I'm kind of coordinating maybe a last second trip, but we'll see. If not, I'll be watching it at home on my TV. And if you're not going to make it to the XL Center, you can catch the game on CBS this Saturday at 12 noon. A nice early game. We'll be keeping an eye out for that. For now, we're going to turn our attention to the other game that was taking place last night. This time at the Jake Nevin Fieldhouse, the Villanova women's basketball team was going for its first Big Five sweep and its first outright title since 2013. Unfortunately, they were denied in their quest by the Penn Quakers and a last-second go-ahead bucket with 1.2 seconds left by Penn's Anna Ross. Heartbreaking way for the game to end. Very heartbreaking. Yeah, especially after you rallied back pretty much throughout the game. They were playing catch-up the, the entire game. Then they hit a three to tie it with about five seconds to go. And then Penn got a timeout. They advanced the ball because you can do that in the women's game. You get to advance it just like in the NBA. And they were able to set up a nice possession. And they were get, able to get a tough shot to fall with about a second to go. And that was it. Pretty heartbreaking to lose that way at home and lose your chance at an outright title in the Big Five. Yeah, can you imagine if they didn't have the advancement rule in women's college basketball? The game would have been so different. Yeah. Like, I don't think they would have gone court to court. Like, they wouldn't have been able to draw such a pretty decent look to drop in 1.2 seconds. Just under five seconds left on the clock. With the advancement rule, they get pushed to the other end of the court. That's a game changer right there. That, that just saved you a couple seconds if that advancement rule didn't exist. And that's a pretty new rule. It wasn't implemented until a couple of seasons ago. Yeah, and it's strange that it's in just the women's game, not the men's game. You would think they would either have them both, or they would just not have it any either. I, I, I don't. I'm not a big fan of the rule. I think it doesn't really make sense. I mean, I understand why the NBA does it because it encourages more offense. I don't understand why you get the benefit from calling a timeout after a made basket. So it is what it is, though. But you're probably right. They probably don't go coast to coast in less than five seconds to at least decent shot off to to win the game. Well, Chris Jenkins did only need 4.7 seconds. 
But there's something with the game that's kind of bothering me about college basketball. It's the consistency with the rules. There's just too many differing rules from all levels of the game. I, I read this interesting argument that someone had about overseas players or, you know, it's these international players who come into the NBA and they contribute right away. And it's because they literally play the same set of rules from like the age of four to when they're like high school, college age, and then they come to the NBA. It's universal from elementary school to whatever their equivalent of semi-pro basketball is that they play by the same set of rules. But here you have the men's side. They play two halves. Women's basketball, they have four quarters. But the NBA has four quarters, a longer three-point line, a shorter shot clock, and women's college basketball and the NBA have the advancement rule, but men's college basketball does not. There's too many. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not too upset. Like, obviously, like, yeah. it's, been a, it's been a part of women's college basketball for the last couple of years, having the advancement rule. But the consistency is just so, so strange how men's and women's college basketball, they're like pretty much the same level in terms of age and competition, but they're different from each other rules wise. I think we were talking about this off air too, that the women's game implemented the 30 second shot clock before the men's did. So you had inconsistency with the shot clock, even something as simple as that between the two. Yeah, and I'm sure there's there's still a few coaches out there who are still against the the change from 35 to 30 seconds. Remember when that was being implemented? It was such a big deal, and like I I have not noticed one difference. <laughs> it definitely changed the tempo a little bit. I feel like it's a good change where it's not too drastic. Like it's not right. I mean, I guess it would make sense if they went to 24 seconds. I wouldn't be angry, but it's not a drastic jump from 35 to 24. It's like right. a nice happy medium. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Like, I mean, what I meant was it is a good change, but like I haven't noticed like a discernible difference in like the play and whatever and the scores because of the the shot clock change. Like if it was 24 seconds, I think you would definitely see higher scoring games, but I don't know if that's necessarily better. To that, I'm sure that there are some rules purists or just people who can have a nice long-winded debate about that, but we're going to focus our attention back to the women's basketball game. Quakers win 79 to 77. Wildcats don't get their outright crown, but they do get a share of the Big Five title, which is is nice. But I'm sure it's a little disappointing when you steamroll through the other three Big Five games, and then you get to the last one and you just hit a roadblock. And it probably didn't help that it came at the end of a, a four games and seven day stretch. Absolutely brutal. And it's not going to get easier this weekend, as we're going to talk about. But Villanova played from behind with Penn. They finally catch up, they catch up, they catch up, and then at the end, it's just like a, a back-and-forth shootout. A big clutch three by Alex Alouin ties it up by at 77. But as we mentioned, Penn gets that last-second shot to fall, and with 1.2 seconds left for Villanova, just wasn't enough time to do anything. Big game for Alex Alouin and Mary Gadeka. Gadeka coming off the bench, just being an efficient machine, scoring 19 points, 10 rebounds, 6 of 9 on the floor. Alex Lewin was fantastic. 19 points, 7 rebounds, 6 assists. Solid game from Jana Tucker. She dropped 5 threes and had 17 points. Kelly Jaycott, Adriana Hahn, a little quieter, a little quieter. Kelly Jaycott was 3 for 4 from deep, but it only had 10 points. But Adriana Hahn was 2 of 8 from long range, which is uncharacteristic of her. If she makes one, just one, one more 3, it's a totally different game. For the Quakers, big game from freshman Aaliyah Parker. What a game for her. She has just absolutely bursted onto the scene as a freshman. A very short learning curve for her. She had 25 points, 9 rebounds, was 10 for 16 on the floor, had 3 blocks, 3 steals. Just was an absolute monster. 
for the Quakers. And then you had Michelle Mochetti dropping 17 points, 8 rebounds. Lauren Whitlatch, we viewed her as the resident sharpshooter for that team. She hit four of Penn's six three-pointers, so she definitely made her presence known, had 16 points. And Anna Ross, the hero of the game, she had 11 points and eight assists. Tough game for the Cats, just a really tough game for them. Yeah, especially in a game where you only gave up six total three-pointers on 23 shots, which is 26%. You would think that with that type of three-point defense, corresponding with shooting about 40% from deep on your own end, you would think that that would be the recipe for a win in, in pretty much every Villanova game. That's, that's been it. You play good enough defense around the perimeter to prevent any type of nonsense going on there. And then you shoot your own threes, make them on your own and you're good. Last night wasn't the night. It was just a really weird game. They were playing catch up from the start, which I, I just didn't really understand. I thought they would get off to a great start at home. Yeah. They've been playing a lot of basketball lately, but you're, you're at home. You would think it would lead to good things, but no, that just wasn't the case. And obviously you're able to storm back, but alas, you just didn't have the ball, the last possession. So You brought up the phenomenal three-point defense and how usually that would lead to a win for Villanova. They'd lock down the perimeter and let their big center cook, which we saw Parker do twenty-five with her 25 points. But if you look at Villanova's shooting numbers, in the second half, they shot 60% from beyond the arc. Not so often you see a team shoot 60% from deep, 9 for 15, and lose a game. Granted, it took a last-second shot with 1.2 seconds left, a basketball and a Ross for this to happen, but it's just heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. It's just, you know, you climb back, you shoot that well, you had an amazing second half, you really revitalized your offense, but just fell short at the end, and it's a heartbreaker. And it won't get easy for them moving forward. This is this game just capped off a four games seven days stretch, played three on the road, came back, had two days rest before jumping into this one, and now it's about to get even harder because this weekend they got two of the top teams in the Big East. They have DePaul on Friday and Marquette on Sunday. Ouch. Yeah, like you said, now it doesn't get any easier. You're barely getting any time off. You play a game, you're off. Play another game, and these games aren't cakewalks either. Like you said. Marquette is 7-0 and going into this weekend, and DePaul is 6-1 and going into this weekend with their lone loss coming against Marquette. That's absolutely crazy. I guess the one benefit is this is all at Jake Nevin, so hooray, but you don't have to travel. But at the same time, man, you get a heartbreaking loss in a game that you probably should have won. Not to mention you lost to St. John's last weekend in the game. You hung around in, you probably should have won that one too. And now you get the two toughest teams in the Big East. Now it's time to put up or shut up. Because this, this is going to prove if they're for real or not. Yeah, with those records you mentioned, they're Big East Conference records. DePaul is 14-5 and overall. We know how the men's team is. We've had some inside sources tell us that there are more people who turn out for the women's games than the men's games. The women's team is absolute, the absolute opposite. DePaul has been very good the last couple years. They didn't win the Big East title, but they've been up there. They've been a very good team. They have a lot of weapons. They have a very loaded team with five players scoring in double digits. They're just going to overwhelm you with their depth. They can go as high as 10 deep if they really want to, even 11. They're that dangerous. DePaul is so good. They played Notre Dame, which is a women's powerhouse. They played really tough. Yeah, they lost. They lost 91 to 82 on the road, but it's been a pretty good indicator of how they've been doing going into this Big East slate. They've blown out teams left and right. Like, the only team that played them pretty close was St. John's, 
which they won by nine. They did lose to Marquette, which is probably the undisputed top team in the conference right now. And they just bulldozed everyone else. Since that loss to Marquette, they've beaten every team by at least 20. So it's not easy. It's not going to be an easy game at all. It's really tough schedule that Villanova has right now. I don't understand. This is, I guess it's the luck of the draw. I don't know who set this up. But to have six games in a matter of less than two weeks, more like 10 days, that's brutal. That's brutal. Yeah, it's absolutely horrific. And I don't want to look too far ahead, but in February, Villanova has to go on the road and play these teams in back-to-back games as well. That's that's ridiculous. So you get all right, so like I said, you get both of them at home in consecutive games, but then you got to go on the road and, and do that. Oh, that's that, that's that just sounds miserable. Looking forward to that, but focus on the now. They do have a pretty strong non-con schedule on top of pretty much dominating the the Big East so far with the exception of Marquette. To give you a pretty good idea of how DePaul is in the Big East, they've at least won a share of the Big East regular season title for four straight years. Since conference realignment, they have owned the Big East in terms of regular season. And they have so many different weapons. I mean, I don't even know where to even begin with this team. You have Marte Grays, Ashton Millinder, Amara Coleman, Shante Stonewall, Kelly Campbell. Any one of these five can score, rebound, shoot from deep, go inside. Like, they're just so versatile. It's amazing how this team works. They literally, it's just like interchangeable parts. Everyone can shoot from deep. Everyone's a threat from deep. Everyone's a threat from inside the arc. And they don't sleep on defense. They work probably even harder on defense. I would say that this is a very good measuring stick for Villanova. Unfortunately, it's going to come after they're beat down by this four-game stretch. But hopefully they can recuperate today, really. They really only have one day and prepare for this game tomorrow night. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. I don't know if they pull it out. It will be very telling of where this team is this weekend. And hopefully they are able to win this one because then you can build some momentum going into the Marquette game. If you lose this game to DePaul, that's three straight losses, two of which were at home, two, two of which you probably should have won. I mean, obviously we don't know how this DePaul game is going to play out. So. Yeah, that that's just not a good look. And then you're you're really down on yourself going up against the big, best team in the Big East on Sunday. Not that that's not exactly the best there. So you you really hope you you pull this one out here. Yeah, Villanova is is going to have a real tough time trying to turn around from this little losing funk that they have right now. And with Marquette on Sunday with a new tip off, the Golden Eagles they were the unanimous preseason pick to win the Big East. This is a team that's loaded with talent. They bring back. Alizai Blockton, who is considered by many to be the best player in this whole conference. She's averaging just under 20 points per game, 6.4 boards. She's such a tough inside presence. She can also sling it from deep once in a while. We talked about how Villanova struggles against very dominant centers and forwards. Blockton is another example of that, which worries me. And then looking at the rest of this team, they have Natisha Heidemann, who is a pretty great three-point shooter. She'll look to do most of her damage from there. Danielle King is also solid. She's averaging 12 points per game. She's their top point guard, very good facilitator. Same goes for Amani Wilborn. Pretty similar point guards, guards in that sense. They're pretty interchangeable. And then Erica Davenport, who was hot coming into the Big East tournament last year, she rounds off this team of Golden Eagles that has five different players in double digits. Unlike... Paul, where it seems like anyone from 1 to 13 can cook against you. Marquette pretty much relies on this core 5, but this is a very good core 5, led by Blockton, 
who was the preseason player of the year, and she's certainly living up to that hype so far. Yeah, she she certainly has. And Erica Davenport, I really want to highlight because I remember last year, I think in both games, she absolutely lit up the Wildcats on the boards. I mean, right now she's averaging about eight rebounds per game. But I remember she was, I think she got like double digit boards in both games last year. So look for her to, to feast again. I mean, obviously you hope Villanova was able to correct the mistakes from last year. It obviously isn't the same team. But if she can replicate any type of performance like she did last year, Villanova might be in for a long night. But just want to highlight one weakness for Marquette. Not exactly the best three-point shooting team. Shooting about 31%. So, which means, obviously, that they, they do most of their business on the inside, which doesn't bode well for Villanova. Maybe if you force them outside a little bit, maybe if they don't, they're not hitting their inside shots, and maybe they have to play a three-point type game, maybe a little bit of catch-up. If you get off to an early lead, then maybe it might play into your favor. But yeah, this team does most of its damage inside, and they are a very, very strong core five. Yeah, we'll certainly be watching this weekend. It's going to be a very important test for Villanova. They've had somewhat of a rough start to conference play so far, and it's definitely not going to be easy. So we're going to see how they rally against these tough two teams coming their way. The first game against Paul is this Friday night. Tomorrow night at 7 p.m., it's going to be on the Big East Digital Network. But then Sunday's game against Marquette, it's going to be on Fox Sports 1. We're going to be on Fox Sports 1. Jake Nevin gets back on uh, on Fox Sports. That's nice. Yeah, second appearance of the season for Jake Nevin on Fox Sports 1. Cool. It's That's going to be a 12 p.m. tip-off. It's on FS1, so everyone will be able to watch it. Hopefully, the Cats will bring up a good show for everyone watching, tuning in at home or at Jake Nevin Fieldhouse. But yeah, two tough games for the Cats. Two really big tests. If they win one of two, I'd be impressed. Not going to lie. Obviously, you want them to win both, yeah. but one of two would be ideal. Yeah, agreed. I'd be impressed with one of two. I'd be pretty happy with that. In fact, I think they'll win one of two. I think they'll I think they'll catch DePaul on Friday, but I don't think they'll beat Marquette on Sunday. Yeah, if you definitely have to pick one, you definitely have to go with DePaul. That, that 12 p.m. tip-off. A little tough already as is because now you're just getting up early and then you take on the top team in the conference. But who, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Crazier things have happened. If they went both, that would be amazing. Worst case scenario would be a blowout to both. That would just be a morale killer. That would be the equivalent of being put in your place like as a child, but being put in timeout. <laughs> right into timeout. We'll keep an eye out on that. We'll be keeping an eye out for the men's team against UConn. For now, it's that time of the day where we dive into the mailbag, look at your questions, and answer them. As always, you can tweet us at S-O-N-N-Pod with anything you want us to discuss on the show. Or you can also leave your messages and questions in the comment section of a podcast thread on viewhoops.com. First question is from Mike J. Who's going to finish second in the Big East? I think I had Seton Hall finishing second. I go, I'm going to go with Xavier. I'm going to change it halfway through the year. I think, I think Xavier is going to usurp them there. And I just think Xavier's just the better team. That's all. And less prone to drop the, the stupid games that Seton Hall seems to drop every year. What say you? Uh, I definitely said Seton Hall would finish second. Um, I know that they had a real rough go at the Central Lick Center in Omaha, which I think is a very underrated home court advantage. Very tough place to play in. And when they have dollar beer night, oh, it's rowdy in there. It gets real rowdy in there. CenturyLink has dollar beer night? Yeah, they've had it twice this season. Oh, my God. Yeah, Brendan Riley was saying how he wants it at the Little Willie. I would love for it to be at the Little Willie. <laughs> I know I know, it would be against Villanova because it would just be like, well, one, beers. <laughs> but <laughs> you're trying to get money back after building, spending cash on this new arena. 
But it would also be a great, like, welcome back for the fans. Here's Dollar Beer Night for when we take on Loyola, Maryland or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's perfect. <laughs> people to come out. It's great. Do it. <laughs> Make the petition or something. I don't know. I, I'm still going to stick with Seton Hall. I, I know that there's just something about this team. Xavier... I, I'll be honest. I don't really. I don't even think I really have a great argument because I think you'd easily go to Xavier too, and I think that's a. I think it's a pretty solid argument that you said, and that Xavier feels less prone to losing the dumb games. Like I feel like Seton Hall will definitely be up for the big games, and they're gonna play phenomenally. But then when they have like a like, I can see them also losing to like a Georgetown on the road, like yeah. 12 p.m. tip off. Mm-hmm. J- just like what what did Angel Logato said? Oh. Oh, I can't wait till Marquette comes to the Prudential Center so they can see the real Seton Hall. What, what, what is that? What, what, what kind of effort yeah. was that when you went to Milwaukee? You got blown up by twenty. Was that not the real Seton Hall? Man? <laughs> yeah, you're basically admitting you mailed it in. Like, yeah, you know. exactly. So ridiculous. So yeah, I feel like Seton Hall is prone to those dumb losses. I forgot if it was Chris Lane or Brendan Riley at the beginning of the season, but I thought it was a great point when they said, you know, all the other teams can be talented, but Villanova is the only one that's like consistent. There's a reason why they don't lose back-to-back games, but these other teams they'll they'll drop the bad ones for like whatever reason. And as we saw with Seton Hall at Marquette, uh, I'm gonna still stick with the Pirates just because I have a feeling that Angel Delgado will just make me angry for some reason. Fair enough. I could, I could easily, I, I could, I, I'll be honest, I, I could easily see Xavier, but that that St. John's game was a little scary yesterday. Makes sense. Can we agree that maybe Xavier might finish second in the Big East in the regular season, but I think Seton Hall has a better chance of getting. Getting to the, title? the oh, Big yeah, East Finals? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Without yeah. a doubt. Without All right. Fair enough. And I think we can also agree that it won't be the other seven teams. Right. Or six. Or no, yeah, seven. Seven. Mm. Won't be the other seven teams. Maybe. Maybe Crate. Maybe. Maybe Crate. Maybe. They'll be your dark horse in your uh, Big East Primer. <laughs> if yeah, you decide right. to do that this year. Yeah, you already know. Yeah. <laughs> Next question is from Dave Ederer. When we decide to use a live mascot, will it be a lynx, ocelot, or serval? What? What's the last option? Uh, serval. What the heck is a serval? How do you spell that? S e r v a l. Oh, cute little cat. I had no idea what a serval was until Dave sent in this question. But for anyone who had who's not familiar with a serval, it is a wildcat native to Africa. Well, I think I'd go ocelot. Those little baby ocelots are the cutest things ever. I know we got to be mean and tough because men and testosterone and all that stuff. But I love those ocelots. They're so cute. And the, the serval, the serval and the lynx have like the similar ears, I feel like. The lynx got more pointy ears. I'm going with ocelot. I'm going with ocelot just because Metal Gear Solid, literally the whole Metal Gear Solid franchise. Revolver I, ocelot. That is one video game franchise I never got into. Yeah, see, I feel like we it just missed our time. I feel like we came in. Like as it was pretty much past its prime and on its way out, but uh, I was I was fortunate to catch it, and I'm gonna go with Ocelot. Although the Serval is interesting, Serval would be number two in my power rank. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave, for introducing me to the Serval. Yeah, same same here. They're cool looking cats. I like the ears. Yeah, I, I would go Ocelot one, Serval two, links three. Uh, I also have an, another question for you. This is this is not a fan question. This is a Eugene Repay question. Oh. Uh, it was a hot topic in the View Hoops chat yesterday. Okay. And we'd like for people to chime in if they have very strong opinions about this. But if you have a hot dog, what is going on the hot dog? Okay. Now hear me out. Okay. <laughs> so when I was younger, I was afraid to try mustard 
it just looked weird to me. It, it, it didn't look right. So I always put ketchup on. So I grew up with ketchup on my hot dogs, which I know a lot of people aren't a fan of. However, once I got older and realized mustard's not a bad thing and it's edible, I started putting mustard on it and ketchup was used very sparingly, if, if at all. So it's, it's pretty much mustard. Every, one, every now and then, I would get a, I'd get like an all the way dog or, a, or an everything dog, whatever, whatever it's called. It's like all the, the, it's like chili sauce, mustard, onions, sauerkraut, all that stuff. It went from ketchup to mustard, and, and now it's just strictly mustard. So I've evolved my taste buds. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally in the same boat. I actually I felt the same way when I was young. When I, was, when I had my first hot dog, I thought mustard was gross. I didn't think it tasted good. Ketchup, phenomenal. Ketchup goes with like a lot of things, and I thought ketchup was good on the dog. It wasn't until about three years ago, when I, uh, back in my city basketball love days, I was covering like an all-day tournament, and they had hot dogs. And I was like, you know what? I'm an adult. I got to give it a second shot. Maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. Right. <laughs> Let me throw some mustard on there. Game changer. It's great. Game changer. It's so good. It's fantastic. Oh, it's phenomenal. But oh. but if I if I had a preference, obviously chili dogs are awesome. Big fan of the chili dogs. Uh. Sauerkraut is great. Sauerkraut's up mm-hmm. there too. But between ketchup and mustard, mustard's going on it. Ketchup's number two. I don't find any problem with ketchup though. But if I had to, if you gave me the option, it's mustard on my dog. Yeah, agreed. I don't have any problems with people who put ketchup on their hot dogs either. I just, I, I grew up with it. So <laughs> that's what I used to do. So that's that. Also, would you ever put hot sauce on your hot dog? Uh,. Uh, no, probably not. If it was just a hot dog, no, but I could see it like, you know, if it was like chili onions and then like throw some hot sauce on top. But like if it was just the hot dog, I would not, no. Okay. All right. That's, that's fair. Cause I, I am a big proponent of Frank's. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I live yep. by the motto. But if I ever have like, like just a regular mustard and it's no, no spicy mustard rolling around, I, I might just throw a little bit of Frank's Red Hot on there. Just okay. if, if they have it going around. They, they have it at Yankee Stadium a lot. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of hot sauce. Hot sauce, in my eyes, is, like, top condiment. Like, that would be first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah. And then and then I could go – I could have a long discussion with power rankings of hot sauces. Yes. Uh, um, yeah, yeah you, saw fast, you saw how fast I went through those hot sauce bottles senior year. Yes, yes. The sriracha – srirachas, they were just basically interchangeable. You had no idea when, when the new bottle opened or when it, when it ended. <laughs> It was just always there. I will say the only, the only thing that will drive me nuts is mayonnaise on a hot dog. I swear, That's ever since I saw someone do it at Fourth of July, and it killed my vibe. And then someone reminded me of it yesterday, and then I got upset again. It just killed my vibe. I, I don't, I, I can't do mayo on a hot dog. I can do mayo in like other sandwiches, like with cold mm-hmm. cuts, but like on a hot dog, no, I, I can't, I can't. No, that that drove me insane. Yeah, that is a little bit of. Lunacy right there. I would never understand that. But hey, they each their own. You want to put whatever the hell you want on your hot dog? I don't care. I'm not gonna ruin my day. Relish is okay. Relish is okay. I had it once. Never had it. It was better than I thought it was, but I I wouldn't go out of my way to put it on. Right. Yeah. No. I yeah. I agree with that. I never had it as a standalone condiment. So I try to avoid that. That's all the time we have for today. Let us know what you think about hot dogs. Otherwise. Thank you for listening to the State of Nova Nation podcast. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or on Podomatic. Please check back on viewhoops.com. We're going to cover a lot of the action this weekend. We have recaps and things like that from the games from last night if you missed them. So check back and check back often. Also, please follow VU Hoops on Twitter and on Instagram at VU Hoops. And you can follow me, Eugene Repay, at eRepay5. And you can follow me, Chris Stanzial, at The Stansman on Twitter. Nova Nation, happy Thursday. Have a good weekend. Don't put mayonnaise on your hot dogs. <laughs>